is up everybody my name is james d fury and this is blackballed i am very frustrated right now at elon musk i'm just going to start off by saying that because i know my guest today i think he likes him i don't know i don't really hate elon musk like everyone else seems to i, I don't really see him as a far right crazy person i see him as uh kind of a troll who doesn't really believe in anything but um be that my guest today is somebody who I, I said in my mind i was trying to be playful but i actually kind of mean it he, I think he speaks Kryptonian. And when I when I say that, I mean he, he is an expert in cryptocurrency, which is a concept that, despite having been hired and successfully delivered a five-minute info kind of advertisement thing for Mount Gox like 10, 12 years ago about Bitcoin and explaining to people what it is which I got paid handsomely for, and they said I did a great job. I still don't understand it. <laughs> no idea what it is. But my guest today does. And I thought his name was, um, I thought his last name was Trades until like three days ago, but it's not. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> his name is Scott McGregor. And dude, I, I hey, literally, I, hey man, how are you? I'm great. I, I, I'm not kidding. I literally thought up until four days ago, and I was like, Dean, is Scott's last name not trades? And he's like, uh, no, dude. And I was like, that was, that's my Dean. That's my Dean. By yeah. Um, and, and I was like, oh, I thought it was like John Smith. You know, like Smith came from like the guy that I guess you're a Smith. You mm -hmm. make steel stuff. And I thought you just had, you were born. Your name was Scott trades. And then you grew up and you're like, I think I'm going to become my name. But that's not the case. No, not the case at all. I do have like another Twitter with my name, and oh. and but it's mostly radio people because I came from a broadcast background, mm. and so when I started getting into trading and and kind of getting into financial Twitter, I didn't want to like inundate all my friends and all my radio people with like these stock picks, and you know I didn't want to be that guy, and so I created yeah. my a new Twitter account, and I was like, well, I don't know what to do. And I'm terrible at like creative names. It's like one of my weaknesses. And so I was like, uh, I don't know, Scott, what am I doing? I'm trading Scott trades. Yeah, that's enough characters. Let's go. You know, it, wor it works from a phonetic point of view because you don't have to pivot from the uh, the T's in Scott to trade. So it's like one word, Scott trades, right? Yeah. Like it's, you yeah, don't have exactly. to imagine. Imagine if you were that anal and you were like Scott <laughs> trades. <laughs> Some people write it like that, um, you know, to their credit, but that's uh, all good. I don't care. It's just a Twitter name. How did you get into what you, what it is that you do and explain for people that might not know what it is that you do? Sure. Yeah. So I am a swing trader. Uh, I, I trade stocks for momentum moves to the upside. And then I also teach people how to trade their own account. So if you are interested in learning about the stock market, you know, I work for a website called stockmarketmentor.com and we teach people how to trade and we trade specific strategies. And so I have my own kind of way of trading. Everyone kind of has their own thing, right? There's like a million different ways to make money in the stock market. And so there, that's why there's so many people doing it is because everyone has their own kind of strategy, their own kind of thing. And so over, you know, a period of about 10 years, 
of going from dabbling, you know, with a thousand bucks to, you know, uh, having multiple accounts that I'm trying to manage, um, you know, just kind of develop my own trading strategy. And that's what I teach to at stockmarketmentor.com. And then, uh, yeah, like I said, was doing that for a while and uh, but came from broadcasting. So kind of like a side project thing. I had a radio program director who was uh, bragging about how much money he was making in the stock market. Mm. And James, I was like, I'm smarter than this guy. I think I could figure <laughs> it out. And so I tried. And uh, and that's kind of how I got started. I would just go to the Globe and Mail website and find what stock went up a bunch that day and be like, I'm buying that one. And then I would buy it. And sometimes I would make money and sometimes I wouldn't. But eventually, over trial and error, you kind of you kind of figure out your way. Uh, for me, it took a, a lot of years and a lot of lost money to figure out my way. I used to, cause I know nothing about how any of this shit works, right? Like I don't understand what it means to, I sort of understand what it means to go public, I guess. But like the idea that, that shares have a value and then shareholders get this and that, like I, I don't have that kind of brain. Mm-hmm. However, um, I'm wondering, I, I had thought, even though I know nothing about it, I ha- I had thought that like maybe 10 years ago, I was hearing um, from friends who were like, I have this friend and he has this software and it just crawls all over stock market things and like it buys and sells really quickly and it makes money in the short term, but really short term. And it does that. And I'm like, oh, okay. So then this entire industry is going to be dominated by this kind of like trading software eventually. And then it now it doesn't feel like that anymore. Now it still feels like it's really a human thing. Like you almost, you almost have to be a human being to sort of know how to do this. Like, will AI be good at picking stocks? You know, a hundred percent it will. Yeah. I'm on my latest podcast, uh, through hotwallet.ca. Check that out. I talked to someone named uh, Timothy Peterson and he talks about AI and trading and how it's going to affect markets. Because right now what we have is we have algorithms. And so most major institutions have programs written by people, uh, algorithms that trade based on news headlines, you know, and, and so they're triggered. Like if something, you know, if the federal reserve, uh, jacks up interest rates, higher than expected, the algorithm will do this. And, you know, then you'll see that reaction. And so you can actually see that in price action. And so one of the major learnings that I had to be able to to trade is just to watch what prices do. And you can actually see a pattern of algorithmic buying and selling because it's very controlled on certain timeframes. And so, James, you can actually watch and be like, oh, this is a computer trading. And and see it on the downside where it's like, uh, computer computerized selling or or what some people will call a sell program because sometimes the market will like sell off in the middle of day uh, in the middle of the day for no reason and it'll be like you know one major institution was like okay we got to unload a bunch of stuff they hit sell and then all of their kind of positions uh, sell off and that brings down the market you know causes copycat selling etc and right. then when that sell program is done the market can then kind of move higher Okay, I gotcha. Um, I didn't understand most of that, but um, <laughs> just, I, you know, yeah, no, no, I did, I did, I, I sort of did. Like, like when the ticker goes by, the only thing that I can make is that okay, that stock is up two and three quarters. That's good. <laughs> that's, yeah, that, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. It's, it's. I mean, it's really just supply and demand, and and then it's all of the world events, macroeconomic events 
company events, uh, you know, like earnings, for example, that affect the price action. Um, but it, it just depends which side is more aggressive. You know, some people say, well, why is this stock going up? Well, because there's more buyers than sellers. That's not really true. It's the same. I'm I'm buying one share. Someone's selling one share. And so it just means that the buyers are more aggressive than the sellers. And that's what allows the stock to rise. Uh, in preparation for this interview, I watched The Big Short, which is one of my favorite movies. Like, Great it, movie. It, I watched it this weekend, actually. Yeah, I just watched it like at three o'clock or whatever. But um, and, and, and I watch it like this. You'll understand it this time, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you know, the weird thing about it is the easiest thing to understand in that movie is the is the entire crux of the movie, which is um, um, uh, what's his name? Batman there. His uh, his character, Michael Burry, Michael right. Burry. Yeah. And and the way and it was so funny to me as a person not in that world being like, wait, no one's actually looked at what these things are made out of that like they don't know that these mortgages are you know about to go into default why don't they know this and it's because the bundles that they make were so huge and it's almost like a bill in congress where no one ever reads the bill and they just vote on it oh 100 right? because they can sell it and so they don't care what was in they didn't care what was inside because they know they have a buyer on that side willing to pay market price and so they'll package it and repackage it and that's how bubbles form is is people stop looking at the fundamentals of whatever the underlying asset or, or thing is that they're trying to buy they don't look at the fundamentals they just say well this has gone up this is how it's been and so this is how it's always going to be so even in you know some of the depths of the 2008 financial crisis and this is something that uh the guy i interview in my latest podcast timothy peterson says because he actually worked for an institution in you know germany that that caused some of the uh, caused some of the crash is even though their models are saying that things aren't looking good they just are buying because that's just what they have always done because that's what always worked yeah what is it okay i know what it, I, I technically i think know what it means to short a stock but but people always say you're gambling that like so so if we use the big short thing as an example he was mm -hmm. gambling that um, he was going to short the housing market which was seen as unheard of because the housing market was always so solid they made government bonds based on the um, consistency of the housing market and how solid it was when you short a stock mm -hmm. who are you gambling against and who where is that money coming from. So the, the concept of shorting a stock, well, let's first off uh, talk about what longing a stock is. And so when I'm longing a stock, I want it to go up, so I'm buying it from someone who is selling it. That sounds when romantic. It, it is. It's very romantic, <laughs> I'm especially longing. if it goes up a lot. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then so when you are shorting a stock, what you're doing is you don't actually own the stock. So I want to bet against something. So what do I, what do I have to do? I actually have to borrow that stock from someone that owns it. And so what I do is I borrow that stock and I sell it into the market with the promise that I'm going to buy it back at some point. And so if I think a stock is going down, I can borrow that stock from someone else, sell it into the market. And then let's say the stock goes down a dollar. I rebuy that stock. And this all happens behind the scenes with a broker. So I don't actually borrow it from someone. You know, I don't knock James on the shoulder and say hey can i borrow your GameStop stock it's all done through the broker and what the broker gets is they get a percentage so the broker is incentivized incentivized for this because they get a percentage of my borrow so i'm basically taking a loan 
of a stock, selling it into the market, hoping it goes down, buying it back. And then when I buy it back, it goes back to its owner. So what happens if you can't buy it back or can you just always buy it back because that's what you bought to begin with? Well, it depends. Sometimes uh, what happens is you get a short squeeze. And so that happens when you have too many people who have done that, sold a mm. stock that they didn't own, and then let's say an earnings report happened. So NVIDIA, for example, or Apple, they have positive earnings. And then all of a sudden that stock is gapping up because anyone who was betting against the stock is now buying it back. And then what happens, and we saw this with GameStop, where so many people were betting against GameStop that it went, you know, ended up going from $10 to $400, and, and the price was just going up and up and up because demand for that stock was going up and up and up. And so uh, you can usually always buy it back. It just depends on what price it is. And, and that's the downside about shorting. Like if I am buying a stock, let's say I'm buying a $30 stock, I know that stock can go to zero and I've lost $30 per share. But when you're shorting a stock, the reason it's so dangerous, and we saw this in GameStop, is because there's no top. It can go up and up and up until infinity. And so your risk when you are shorting a stock is actually infinite compared to when you are longing a stock. Interesting. How is it possible that it's not completely run by insider trading? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there are, right? I mean, there is like institutions that run the market. And so my job as a swing trader and as an active investor is not to think that I have the power to move the market. My job is to look for patterns in the stock market, in the stock price that I've seen before. And then I draw little lines on the chart and then I say, okay, I see this consolidation like a long, let's say a stock has gone sideways for a long, long time and then it breaks out of that range and goes up. Well, the probability is that since it has this nice long base of consolidation and now is finally breaking out, the probability is that, well, let's see. Okay, no one sold it enough to break it down. So now who's in control of the stock? The buyers are in control. Now I want to buy that stock too. Follow that momentum and then ride that move higher. Do you think if aliens Sorry, did that answer your question? I yeah, it, it actually did. No, it actually did. Okay. But do you think if aliens came down, do you think we could defeat them by just trying to teach them what Bitcoin is? <laughs> I don't think so. It's actually not that complicated, James. Once you once you uh, you got to study it. Right. And so that's what I did. It usually it, it, takes let me, 10 let me, hours yeah. to really learn anything. Yeah. And okay. So I, if let, you actually I, I, take the time to do it, then then you will learn it. I, like I said, I literally wrote an ad for it. Like I I I spent yeah, like that's not studying the technology. That is, you know, that's knowing of something, not knowing uh, about something. Okay. Um. Fair. Now, <laughs> what gives it the value that it has? So the way we value networks is based on two things. Okay. How many people are using the network and the amount of transactions on that network? And so the connections within the network. And so if you think of something like Facebook, right? Why is Facebook worth a billion dollars or billions of dollars? Because they have a lot of people using that network via Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, et cetera. And then you have a lot of transactions within that network. And so they've leveraged those eyes and the people using the network for advertising dollars. Now let's go to Bitcoin. What is it? It's a money network. And so we have a lot of people transacting with each other, using the network and sending money back and forth. Now the value can go up and down based on those two factors. 
how many people are using the network, actually, you know, sending Bitcoin back and forth to each other, and then the size of those transactions and stuff like that. And so that's how we value networks generally. And then that's you can kind of just take that simple analogy and apply it to all of the cryptos. Like, you know, there's 6,000 plus cryptos out there. Why do these have values? Well, because there's a lot of people using those networks and the value of the transaction, you know, they keep transacting in this network. Uh, you think of Ethereum, for example. Ethereum, people use the network to send and use smart contracts, but then they also have to spend Ethereum to buy NFTs, for example. And so there's a lot of people using the network and they're transacting with each other on that network. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it, well, sort of. Um, but it, it, it all feels, though, like the entire operation is propped up or backed by fiat money. Well, uh, I, I, yeah, I'm trying to understand. So if I have a, if I have a hundred grand and I want to buy a whole yeah. bunch of Bitcoin and I use that hundred grand to buy Bitcoin, isn't that hundred grand helping the value of Bitcoin? Uh, it can, yeah, but you know the market can then sell it down, and so just you know, like during the way on the way down throughout the 2022 season, we actually had more institutional money come into Bitcoin than we did in oil, gold, and agriculture. Wow. And I talk about that on my podcast, hotwallet.ca. You can see the one. It's called Bitcoin Whale Watching. And so even though we had all this money coming into the market, what happened to price? Well, price still went down. And again, why did that happen? Well, because less people were using Bitcoin. And so the value of that, bit, of that network drops. And then we also had the rise of the U.S. dollar. And so we saw, you know, the U.S. dollar come, you know, basically out of the depths to this big run up in, in 2022. And that brought down all risk assets. And the reason it did is because one of the reasons that you want to invest is to hold your value of your dollar. Right. Like if I know that my dollar is going to hold value, well, I'll just hold it in dollars. But if I know that with inflation and stuff like that, the value of my dollar is going to go down, well, then I want to put this dollar in the fastest horse possible. And for some people, that's real estate. You know, you buy a house, it goes up in value over the years. And, and what's really happened? Well, you've increased the amount of dollars you have. And so mm. that's what we try and do as risk managers is we just try and basically beat inflation so that we can make more money and have more money than we did when we started. And so that's one of the reasons that people use uh, Bitcoin as a speculative asset, because they see the value of this network. And sometimes it goes up, sometimes it goes down. But uh, ideally, it goes up you know, longer over time so that you increase the uh, I'm, I'm kind of getting in the weeds here, but so the, no, that you have more dollars when you started or than when you started, if that makes sense again. Uh. Uh, whatever. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of all over the place. <laughs> no, no, no. No, it, it makes sense that people are smarter than me. I, I, I avoided this stuff like the. It's funny. I was good at math when I was really young, and then polynomials were introduced to me, and I was like, "Well, fuck math, right?" Like, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> I, I wish someone told me. Someone said something the other day that I thought was really kind of profound. My, my son right now is taking drumming lessons, and he doesn't. And I've noticed that he reacts badly to the word practice. So now I call it super adventurous drum time, right? And he's a okay. little bit more excited. I think terminology ruins things for, for, especially for young people. Like when young people hear like um, the term peer pressure, they probably don't think of anything. Peer pressure? Like what does that even mean to them? It means nothing. 
But if you're like, you know, your friends are stupid, please don't be stupid like your friends. Oh, okay, that means something. And it's basically the same thing. So they kind of, and I feel like, um, you know, the, 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 the ter- terminology of things is, is, is often what gets people to glaze over. And I'm one of those people. But I understand, um, ever since I was young, I remember gold, <laughs> this is kind of a, a glimpse into my life, gold and hash were always basically equal an ounce. It was always around, <laughs> it was always between like 230 and like 280 an ounce forever when I was young. And then all of a sudden, like gold shot up to like 2000. And I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. This is crazy. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin, when I did that ad, it was probably like 2011 or something. It was like a hundred bucks. Yeah. And if you told me back then, what is it right now? Like, I, I don't know, 18? I can't remember what it is. Uh, it's around 24 US, uh, 24,000 US. Right. Is there any commodity that's ever existed that has, and it was like at 200,000 at one time, wasn't it? Uh, no, the highest it got was like 69,000 US. Okay, so 70,000 or whatever. Is there yeah. anything that's ever increased in value that sharply over such a small amount of time? Bitcoin is the best performing asset in all of human history. Yeah. And so even now, when it, even now at 24, right? Even now, it's still up 40% on the year. Yeah. And so, and the stock market is, you know, basically flat ish. And so, even now, it's still one of the best performing asset classes uh, in the world. And, and again, it has to do with scarcity of the asset. And so, like with gold, for example, you know, gold miners are always looking to get more gold and sell it for the price. You know, so th- some of the biggest sellers of gold are the people who are actually finding it and, and you know, because that's how they make money. Uh, but that also increases the global supply. And so one of the things with Bitcoin is it has a fixed supply and, and it's time released. So, you know, like if you go to the U.S., clock debt clock you can see how many dollars there are in the world and it's like trillions and trillions of dollars and that's why one dollar from the year 1930 is now worth two cents because they've increased the supply of dollars you know dollars have lost 98 percent of their value in less than 100 years right meanwhile you have a fixed asset like gold or like bitcoin or something like that those have held their value. And so again, this comes back to kind of the point that I was trying to make earlier about holding our, our value and, and what's the best asset to hold our value in. For some people, it's their house. You know, Their house will be the largest asset that they'll ever own. It'll ideally go up over time and then they'll have more dollars you know, when they're done. And so that's the idea with a fixed asset or a fixed supply asset like Bitcoin. There's only ever gonna be 21 million and it's mathematically programmed how many are coming out each each day, each minute, each year, et cetera. And is, so that's are, one of the big things about Bitcoin is its fixed supply. Are there projections? I mean, it's probably really difficult because it's like everything's pioneered in real time in a sense. But is there, are there predictions as to what's going to happen once that last Bitcoin is released? Like what, what? So, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, they, they have, uh, you know, some of the hardcore Bitcoin maximalists have have planned this out for hundreds of years. And so they plan to hold Bitcoin for a hundred years. Oh. Um, and, and so, yeah, uh, that that has all been 
kind of planned out. And that's one of the reasons that we have some of these, you know, big price predictions on Bitcoin. The One of the first interviews I did for my podcast last year was with a guy named Greg Foss. He has a $2 million price, uh, price prediction for Bitcoin, 2 million US dollars in today's money. Wow. Uh, and, and again, why is that? Well, that's because he, you know, his prediction is that the people are going to start using Bitcoin as a value transfer network. And the more people that use it, and because of its scarce fixed supply, the value then goes up. And so that's kind of one of the value propositions of, of Bitcoin. People look at it as a store of value or as digital gold just because of its properties. I mean, if you think of gold, as we're talking about gold, James, you know, how hard, uh, you know, would it be for you to move $100 million worth of gold? Probably not that It'd hard. actually be pretty hard. And oh, it would, would it? cost a lot of money. Oh, because oh, of the weight of the gold. Okay, I thought you meant like just an electronic trade or something. Okay, yeah. yeah. No, no, no. I'm talking like physical gold. The fuel and cost so, alone, Scott. Right? And so, okay, let's say James wants to move money around the world. What's the best way to do it in 2022, mm. 2023? Well, you can move $100 million worth of Bitcoin, and probably it'll only cost you a couple of bucks rather than doing it with gold, where you have to, you know, you got to, Get a security team. You got to right. get some pallets. Yeah. You got to actually visit, you know, some sometimes when you're buying gold on the market, it's not actual gold. It's just a piece of paper, you know, basically an IOU for gold. And so, you know, the, the friction of moving value uh, is just it, it, it goes away when you look at digital assets like Bitcoin and, and Ethereum and stuff like that compared to physical gold bars. When somebody and so that's one of the value propositions of Bitcoin. If someone wires me $10,000 and then $10,000 goes to my account, there's no physical, like a pile of money doesn't go from one place to another. It's just the numbers. So aren't we already kind of digital? Uh, we are. Uh, we certainly are. Like they have, uh, you know, something like the SWIFT network and stuff like that for bank mm. transfers and whatever. Yeah. Uh, but those are usually pretty slow and, and, uh, and you know, they they have to have some trusted parties along the way. My bank has to talk to the SWIFT network. The SWIFT network then has to talk to your bank, et cetera, et cetera. And they get to decide how much that goes, how much they charge us along the way. And so, right. you know, uh, where Bitcoin, you know, again, the friction will be a, a lot less because you're just paying whatever the network fee is. And there's no third party involved. It's just software. It's running and it works. You know, what's interesting is that when I did that ad, so this is like 2011 or something like that. So like, let's just say 10, 11 years ago, the Bitcoin was kind of like a, a progressive thing. Like it was like uh, restaurants in Vancouver that were introducing Bitcoin and all these staunch conservatives were like, well, this is just nonsense, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. and everything. And now, and then what happened? Why is it associated with like, like the far right now like I, I, i'm not i'm not fully understanding where that flip went if it was by design because like you know staunch conservative bankers were like fuck these socialists and their bitcoins let's let's flush <laughs> it out to the to the troops or whatever like it, it was there an event that happened was it just elon musk's promotion of it like what what how did that happen because it did happen it was very progressive idea to have digital currency that the mean conservative banks couldn't get their hands on it felt like that at the time and now it's just kind of flipped 
Yeah, it's there certainly has been that shift, right? We saw it with Justin Trudeau and Pierre Polyev, and they're kind of throwing yeah. Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin around like a volleyball. And we see that in the U.S. as well, where it seems to be more or less a Republican cheerleading thing. That said, there are Democrats and there are liberals that own Bitcoin and see the value of it. I think a lot of it just has to do with, you know, uh, it's a very libertarian idea because it's all about your own custody and your own ownership. I don't need a bank to hold my money. I'll hold my money and I'll be, you know, the the master of my domain. I don't need a third party. And so that's really, I think, where the right takes hold of it because they say, well, you know, what's the, you know, what do they chant on? Oh, it's about freedom, freedom of choice, yeah. freedom of, you know, freedom over my life, which again is a very libertarian idea. So that's kind of where I think that they just all kind of went with it. Um, you know, I've always said Bitcoin doesn't have a political party. It's a software. It's computers, right? Like, yeah. you know, does um, does Facebook have a political party? Mm, no, yeah, not really. they're called the you Democrats, know, it, aren't they? Uh, I don't know. You know, does the Square, uh, you know, the Square payments have a political party? Right. No, right. it's just a it's just a business. And so, uh, you know, I've always been someone who just says uh, just, you know, don't let politics decide what you invest in. Uh, do your research and, and figure out what works for you. And so that's kind of my thought. Uh, and, and I don't like the fact that um, it, it seems like a right wing idea. Or, or, you know, the left hates it because, you know, I'm personally a centrist. And so I, I just kind of yeah, look at both sides and be like, well, I think you're both acting a little strange. You know, I think, uh, why can't we come together and just say, is this technology valid? Can we leverage it for all humanity? And then let's figure out how. Because what we're doing right now, you know, obviously doesn't work. And we see that right now with the U.S. dollar system in terms of, you know, central banks. There's a few people around the world. They get to decide the value of money. And they are unelected and, uh, you know, and, you know, they control the, the stock market right now. Have you ever so, gone yeah. down that rabbit hole? It's a really fun rabbit hole because then it's, it's like it's those dark documentaries that talk about how like every war really has to do with bankers. <laughs> You're like, oh, it's a dark place to go. And I, t I try to try. I try to go towards the light. So, yeah, <laughs> that's well, that's my good. Thought. Well, listen, um, I may have learned something. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, I'm sure people smarter than me in the audience did because you know what you're doing. Um, we've talked many times before on the Dean Blundell show. You're welcome to come to Casual Friday anytime you want because um, that's where I go to misbehave and it's usually quite a riot. So Great. Yeah, if yeah. I ever want to get drunk on the internet, I'll definitely come on by. Well, there you go. You already <laughs> understand the theme of the show. You're halfway there, buddy. <laughs> Scott McGregor, thank you for joining us tonight, Ben. Thanks, buddy. Take care. All right. You have a good one. Scott McGregor, not Scott Trades, although Scott Trades, um, because that's what he does. Uh, I'm glad he uh, he sort of cleared that up for me. I really thought his name was Scott Trades, and I was like, this guy picked the best career. It'd be like me being called like, you know, James Library or James Pod, something like that. I don't know. Um, there were no interruptions during that broadcast, but I'm still very. You know, like I have Max Bernier tomorrow and John Spencer. Max Bernier at 8 o'clock, John Spencer at 10.30. Um, he's in Texas. Now, both of those people I've had on the show before, and out of, like, see, if I have a top 10 of podcasts, one interview from each of them is in that top 10. They have big followings and everything like that. So I'm worried, ladies and gentlemen. I'm worried about this live streaming thing and living in a forest and using Starlink 
I'm just worried that 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 is going to just happen all the time. And if it happens during one of those interviews, it's going to really bother me because um, it's my biggest audiences. A lot of people probably get annoyed. I look at the reviews of my podcast sometimes and it's not uncommon to see the following, uh, to read the following. He often has really good guests and I really like his style of interviewing, but the audio, (laughs) I get it all the time. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I need a satellite or an actual cell tower or just something. Um, But either way, um, Max Bernier tomorrow at 8 o'clock, John Spencer at 10.30. On Thursday, I have a punk rock bird watcher, and uh, that is exactly what he is. He's also a very distinguished award-winning ad guy. Like, he's a creative director, designer, really cool artist. His name is Paul Riss. Also happens to be my ex-brother-in-law. Uh, which is neat. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so he used to be married to one of my sisters and now he's, uh, he's got a family of his own and everything. So it will be, trust me, you're not going to want to miss it because just like the eclectic vibe, the, the, uh, the, the, the broad sort of like, uh, he's just super talented. He's, he's literally considered to be like probably top 10, um, advertising creative, like, you know, success stories in the last 20 years. Uh, he's, he's one of those guys. He's worked for all the big agencies and everything. He's won like dozens of awards, I think, but he's a really fascinating cat. And then of course on Friday, we have casual Friday. So again, Max Bernier tomorrow, uh, part one of the double header part two, uh, urban warfare expert, John Spencer. Um, just a reminder, John Spencer is the guy that wrote the manual that the Ukrainian military bought 100,000 copies of to give to their civilian forces to teach them about urban warfare. So he knows what he's talking about. Uh, Paul Riss on Thursday and Casual Friday on Friday. So thank you again for joining me today on this un- uninterrupted broadcast of Blackballed. And we'll see you next time on Blackballed. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. 
I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com.